Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Philippians 2, reading verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you reveal yourself to us in your word and in your son, Jesus. We ask that you would open our eyes this morning. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in this portion of your scripture. Teach us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few weeks, I've noticed a recession in the growth of my four-year-old daughter, particularly in the area of manners. Now, y'all know what I'm talking about. Now, just like all of you, Cassie and I try our best to teach our kids to be respectful, to be kind, to love their neighbor. But lately, she's experiencing some struggles in this area of her life. Now, I don't know why. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe, it's, maybe I can blame it on the pandemic. Maybe, uh, maybe she's just a four-year-old. Or maybe she's a sinner like me. It's probably all of the above in some capacity, but we have to continually come back to her over and over and over, reminding her how to ask respectfully for things, how to make respectful requests, and how to give respectful and kind responses when someone does something for you. Instead of saying, Mommy, I want food, a better way to ask would be to say, Mommy, may I have a snack, please? All of you moms know what I'm saying. When daddy tells her to clean her room, the improper response is to say, fine. (laughs) In fact, the way to get daddy's blood boiling, to see smoke come out of my ears and fire coming out of my mouth, is to use the word fine with me. A better response is what? Yes, sir, daddy. And then go clean the room. And when someone gives her something, when we give her something that she's asked for, the proper response is to simply say thank you. Even the baby knows that. She's she's now learning to say titi, which just means thank you. But all of this formation, all of this teaching takes repetition. It takes constantly coming back over and over and over, reminding her, forming her, shaping her, how to be respectful, how to be polite, how to be kind. And y'all, if we're honest with ourselves when it comes to prayer, we're all a bunch of four-year-olds. We forget how to pray. We forget what to ask for. We regress and recess in our supplications. We even forget that we're praying to God. 
And so we repeatedly, over and over and over, come back to the Lord's Prayer. We come to this Lord's Prayer asking our Lord, teach us to pray, and we live in it, learning the movements of prayer, steeping ourselves in the theology of the prayer, steeping ourselves in the grammar of the prayer, and getting to know the one to whom we pray. And we come this morning to the last phrase, to the final phrase of the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And while this phrase doesn't appear in the text of Matthew 6, the church has been using it for 2,000 years as the conclusion to the prayer the Lord taught us to pray. And so it's worth a theological reflection on the significance of this final phrase. And what this prayer teaches us, what the whole of the Bible teaches us this morning, is that we praise God because praise is the perfect conclusion to our prayers. It's proper for us to say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Our requests actually lead us to doxology because we're confronted with the majesty of the one to whom our prayers are made. But why is it a perfect conclusion? Why is praise the proper conclusion? What is it about God that makes praise the fitting conclusion to our prayers? The first thing that we see in the prayer and in Philippians 2 is that we praise because God rules over the world. And that rule is both a present partial reality and a future completed reality. Look at verse 9 in Philippians 2. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. When Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, Hebrews says after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And God said to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's a present reality. Jesus is already sitting on his throne in heaven. He's already taken up his throne at the right hand of the Father. He rules there as great David's greater son next to the majesty on high. He is the present king in heaven. But it's also a future reality. It's a future sure reality as verse 10 indicates in chapter two of Philippians. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. John gets a a glimpse into heaven in Revelation 5 and uses words that are similar to Paul's words here. In Revelation 5, he sees the future and the whole world gathered around the throne. And he says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
This is the future reality that awaits us. The heavenly king sitting on his throne on earth, the two realms reunited in Jesus and the whole universe coming to the throne of God and bending a knee in honor of the king. What that means for you now is that Jesus rules and that you have no other allegiance except allegiance to him. You submit to no other power but to Jesus' power. You don't allow social causes to take over your life. You don't submit to political candidates as the saviors. You don't allow social media to dictate what you value and what you give your life to. So when we profess, for thine is the kingdom, we praise God because he rules over the world currently in Jesus and he will rule in the future when King Jesus takes his rightful place on the earth. And that leads us then to the second reason we praise God. We praise God because God has the power to answer your prayers. God's power in the scriptures are first tied to creation. We see him powerfully speaking the world into existence in Genesis 1 and 2. All he has to do is open his mouth and say a word, and the universe obeys his command. Isaiah 40 tells God's people, lift up your eyes on high and see. He's saying, look up at the sun, the moon, and the stars. Who created these? He who brings out their hosts and numbers them, calling them all by name, because he is great in strength, mighty in power, not one is missing. When you look at the created world, you look at the, power, you look at the product of the creator. It's like walking to, into the home of a master craftsman, and you are in awe because of the furniture he has created. You look at creation in awe because God created it, and he holds it all together by the word of his power. But not only in creation, we see God's power chiefly demonstrated in the resurrection in the recreation of life, particularly in the resurrection of Jesus. This is the assumption of Philippians 2, that Jesus is highly exalted because he's no longer dead. He's alive. He's defeated death. But listen to how Paul intricately ties God's power to the resurrection in Ephesians 1. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, another word for power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? It's the power of God that accomplished the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God put his power on display in the resurrection, defeating death by entering into death. He defeated it from the inside. And Peter says in in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2 that it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's an incredible image. Death could not hold him because he was more powerful than death itself. 
And one day that same power that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your dead body and to my dead body. And so y'all, if, he's, if he has the power to raise a dead man from the grave, he certainly has the power to give you your daily bread. He certainly has the power to forgive your sins. He certainly has the power to deliver you from evil. And when you experience that provision, when you experience that forgiveness, when you experience that deliverance, the proper conclusion is praise, is to offer your praise, for thine is the kingdom and the power, because he has the power to answer your prayers. And then lastly, we praise God because God has revealed his glory in Jesus Christ. The word glory comes from the Hebrew word for heavy or weighty, and it indicates God's significance in and of himself. His glory is not something that we can search for. It's not something that we can find as if we've lost a piece of jewelry and if we shine the light of our smartphone under the bed in the dark, we'll find it. But God has to shine the light of his glory into our darkness, and he has to disclose himself to us. Now, he did this for Israel. He did this for Israel when he revealed his glory like a devouring fire on Mount Sinai, Exodus says. He did this for Moses when he hid Moses in the cleft of a rock and he showed Moses his back. The tabernacle and then later the temple in the Old Testament is where God chiefly revealed his glory to his people in Israel. But now in the new covenant, God has chiefly manifested his glory in his son, Jesus. Particularly in his incarnation, his becoming fully human, and in his crucifixion, his death on the cross. Listen to these words from Paul in Philippians 2. He said, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be taken advantage of. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this was all done at the end to the glory of God the Father. The Father's glory is revealed and it's accomplished through the humiliating self-sacrifice of the Son in his incarnation and his crucifixion. John tells us in chapter one of his gospel that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The understanding of the apostles was that in the incarnation, God entered through the back door of human history in the slums of Bethlehem, being born to a young virgin and a poor carpenter. And while remaining fully God, the Son became fully man, and Jesus became the new tabernacle, the dwelling place of God with man. And in Jesus, God reveals his glory to humanity. He shines the light of his presence into the the darkness of our world in the incarnation, putting on flesh. And Jesus also understood his crucifixion to be yet another way God is revealing his glory to the world. In John 12, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. 
And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then God speaks from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the hour Jesus speaks of here is the time of his death, the time of his crucifixion. He's finally come to the moment history has been waiting for. And it was that hour, through his death, for the salvation of the world, that God would yet again reveal his glory to the world. If God is willing to humiliate himself by becoming human and dying on a cross, he is certainly worthy of your praise. He is certainly worthy of your adoration. And so you praise him because he reveals his glory, his significance through his humiliation, through the humiliation of the son and his incarnation and his crucifixion. And so friends, for the Christian, Kingdom, power, and glory are subversive realities. The kingdom is an already and not yet kingdom. His power is displayed by defeating death from the inside of death. And his glory is revealed and accomplished through humility. These things are not tied to prestige or politics. They're not tied to money or economic fluctuations. They're not tied to social causes and they're not tied to social media. But kingdom and power and glory are intricately, intimately tied to Jesus. And that's why we continually come to Jesus, continually coming to our Lord and asking him, teach us to pray over and over and over. So we steep ourselves in the Lord's prayer. We soak up its theology and we saturate ourselves with its grammar and with its meaning. And what you discover is that the perfect conclusion to our prayers is praise. Praise of the one who is worthy. You praise God because he rules the world In the ascension, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, ruling now and waiting for the day when his reign will be made complete. And you praise him because he has the power to answer your prayers. And he has decisively proven that by defeating death, by diving headlong into it and defeating it in the resurrection. And you praise him because he has revealed his glory through the humility of the Son in the incarnation and crucifixion. You praise him because he is far more worthy of your praise than you can even imagine. And we have barely scratched the surface this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you great thanks this morning. Great thanks that you are willing to enter into this world that you took on flesh and bone and you bled and you died in Jesus for us. You offered him as the atoning sacrifice to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. And you defeated death for us. And you offer us new life in him 
So we give you thanks. Teach us to pray. Continually teach us to praise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.